Title of our lesson this morning, From Sorrow to Celebration. That was a little bit of a lengthy reading there that Mark did for us this morning. But if you noticed in chapter 4 and verse 1, that was kind of the sorrow part. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. And then in chapter 9, 18 through 32, that was a little bit lengthy reading. Did you pick up the name of that holiday? Purim. Purim. Keep that in mind. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a, in a few minutes. Okay. Esther is really a book of crisis, but it's also a book of, I should sort of put on there, celebration. And it's about God's providence. That's what we talked about last week. It's an ancient story, no doubt. It's about 2,500 years old, but it's a very modern application. It has a very modern application. There's three points I want to take a look at this morning. There's going to be an enemy that is exposed. We'll talk about that's Haman. We'll talk about that enemy is defeated, and then there's going to be a message of salvation. That's what kind of comes towards the tail end of the book there. We talked a little bit about God's providence last week and his ability to be able to see things before they happen and then enact in a certain way to bring about his will or to act in the best interest of his people. So it's not necessarily or it's not miraculous but God seeing beforehand what is going to happen and then him intervening by various actions. Now, as you think about that, and you think about God working in the natural sort of course of things, there's five people primarily that are mentioned in this story. And I'm going to talk about them just a little bit here in just a moment. Because God is going to use each one of these people to bring about his desired will, because one of them is acting totally contrary to God's will. And there's some others that are kind of being used, manipulated against God's people, but then God intervenes and He uses His people to bring about the benefit for all of His people and His desired outcome. Five people, King Xerxes or Ahasuerus, as it's sometimes mentioned here. His first queen, Bastai. His number one right-hand man, so to speak, at the beginning of the story, second in command to the king, is a man by the name of Haman. And he's a principal player in this whole story. And then there's Mordecai a Jew, a faithful man, and then there's his cousin, the small girl that he raises, which is Esther, and she ends up becoming queen over the largest empire in the world. Now, this story, this book, 2,500 years ago, which is actually not that long in the grand scheme of things, and I told you last week, one of the things that really impresses me kind of excites me about this particular story. You can look up Susa. (laughs) You can look up the city gates and you can see the ruins of this. This is a real part of history. These are real people. You can read in secular history about the kings of Persia and they will mention Ahasuerus or Xerxes, the Greek name. You can find these peoples. This is a real story. It reminds me of just a number of years ago when I was substitute teaching and I went to a middle school one day and they were talking about the Babylonian Empire. (laughs) 
They're talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Now, they didn't talk about Daniel. <laughs> but I wanted to tell them, let me tell you the rest of the story. <laughs> well, in secular history, you may not find Queen Esther. But it's here. This is the rest of the story. And so as you think about these characters that play a part in history at this particular time, first of all, there is King Ahasuerus. And let me tell you this. That celebration, that Purim, you can look this up for yourself. You can go on Jewish websites. I go on Jewish websites from time to time. I'm not afraid to admit that. <laughs> Purim is there. And I'll tell you a little bit more about it in a few minutes. But King Ahasuerus, he's the first character in here. And based upon what he, did, he does, because he's kind of manipulated... He's the one that actually causes Purim to even ever happen. And when on you look on those Jewish websites, they talk about these characters and they also talk about King Ahasuerus and these are their words, not mine. But I mentioned to you last week, whenever you think about King Ahasuerus and you read through this story, you reach the conclusion, this guy is not the sharpest pencil in the box. They used even a little stronger language. They say things like, this guy was a buffoon. <laughs> it's like, wow. So the very first character is King Ahasuerus. And he seems like the kind of guy, he just operates on whims. If the wind is blowing in a certain direction, he just goes with it. If it shifts directions and it goes the other way, he goes with it. And so as you open this story and you start to read it, there's, they're having a party. He's the one that has called for this. It's a celebration and it lasts for six months. That's a big party, isn't it? And during the course of this party, you remember we talked about this last week, that towards the end of it, as he's kind of winding down, and it mentions that he and the others there are kind of merry with wine... <laughs> He calls for Vastai because she's a beautiful woman to come down, parade herself. And I'm not going to go into it all, but if you read various commentaries, they say all kinds of things about why she said no. Mostly I know this. She said no. Now, why she said no? I got some assumptions, but I don't know totally for sure. But I do know this, that he called for the queen, he called for his wife, and wanted her to come down and parade herself in front of these other men. What kind of guy does that? Huh? <laughs> and so when she says no, some of his buddies Say, so you need to get rid of her. And so you know what he does? He gets rid of her. Now, doesn't it make you think that when this guy was looking for a wife, what was on his list of criteria? Well, I don't know exactly when he was looking for Vastai, but I do know this when he started looking for the next one, what was on his criteria? It went and they went and gathered all the beautiful young ladies from throughout the empire. So that tells me once again, what is this guy really interested in? 
He's just interested in physical attractiveness. Now let me tell you guys. And young people. When it comes time to choose a mate, you may want to think just a little bit deeper than just physical attractiveness. Right? And I do know this about Vasti. When she said no, maybe she was getting tired of being treated that way. Is that a possibility? And I do know for a fact that when he looks for his second wife, once again, it's just physical beauty. And whenever they gather them, what do they do for an entire year? (laughs) They pamper them. And they feed them. And they rub oils on their body. And all these kind of perfumes and all these kind of things. Is that physical? I don't see anything about any spiritual training going on in there. Do you? So this is what's happening in the king. This is what's going on with King Ahasuerus. This is where this guy operates. And he just kind of moves from whim to whim. And then there's Vastai. Now, I think that's interesting. Because we know from this day and time and what's recorded in this book, and we know that whenever Queen Esther, or when Esther wants to go before the king, she tells her cousin Mordecai, you could die. (laughs) There's a law that says you just do not walk in before the king. And if you just up and do something that the king doesn't permit, you die. So doesn't that tell you also something about Bastai? The king said, come. Was there a possibility by saying no? You die? We do know this. She gets banished to never see him again. But then I ask myself, Maybe she had lived that way long enough to where she finally said, I'd rather die than continue like this. Now let me ask you something. Do you think that has a modern day application? Do you think that kind of thing ever happens in marriages and in relationships? I can't go on like this. So then there's Haman. Now Haman, we are told that he is a a Agagite, and we'll talk just a little bit more again about that in a few minutes. This guy is the poster boy for Proverbs, the sixth chapter. You know what Proverbs chapter 6, about 16 through 19 says about a proud person? These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Did Haman miss any of those things? <laughs> it's like a check mark. <laughs> like a checklist for him. That's him to a T. That's, that's Haman. Haman lives for himself. 
And pride is the main thing that controls him and it drives him. It's things, it's power, it's control over people. Let me ask you. Do you know anybody like that? And so then there's Mordecai. Mordecai, as is described within this story, he sits in the gate, the king's gate. So what that tells you is that he serves the king. But as you continue to read this story, we come to find out that Mordecai is the one that took his cousin Esther, and nothing is said about wife. He took her and raised her. What's that tell you? He serves the king. He serves this girl. And as you continue in the story, he serves his people. He serves God. Do you know anybody like that? And then there's Esther. She was an orphan Jewish girl. She's raised by Mordecai. She ends up becoming queen. But whenever she hears the bad news about what Haman has done, and she sees that Mordecai is out in the street in sackcloth and ashes, she tries to serve him by sending clothes to him. And then when she finds out ultimately what's going on, she decides she'll serve her people, even if it costs her her life. And in so doing, she serves that entire race, and she serves God. You know anybody like that? Those are the people in the story. Esther chapter 3 and verse 1. The enemy exposed. Once again, uh, as I mentioned last week, because of our time, there's a lot of passages I won't read. I'll mention, but we'll have to move along. Esther chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes and made him over them. What that tells us is is that Haman became second in command throughout uh, the entire empire. So now... Haman, he loves the position that he has. He loves the idea that whenever he walks by, everybody is supposed to bow down to him. But what we find out is, based upon his ancestry, is that he had a long history with the Jews. Because he was descended from the Amalekites. They had had animosity for a long time. But now he's a powerful man in a position who thinks he's a mover and a shaker. And now he has an opportunity to take revenge on Mordecai. And not only on Mordecai, but all of his people. And so he loved the position that he was in. Powerful, rich, recognized, and he loved it when he got promoted. I want to read to you from Esther chapter 3 at verse 13. 
he persuaded the king that there was a certain people within the empire that need to be annihilated. He didn't bother to tell him, tell him that it was the Jews. He just said a certain people. And so after he had convinced the king, it says, and the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. See, he had persuaded the king, there's a certain people that doesn't follow after your laws, and it's not in your best interest to keep them, and what we ought to do is get rid of them. And the king, Ahasuerus, because of the type of personality he is, he goes, that sounds like a good idea. And he doesn't even bother to ask who that is. But he allows Haman to draw up a letter with the scribes and then he puts his signet ring on it and says, destroy them. And so what they do is they get together, per um, per lost, cast lots, they roll the dice. It's like, what day do you want to kill all of these people? Well, let's just pick a day. Let's just roll the dice. And what they came up with is in the month of Adar. That's the 12th month. And on this day, we kill them. Not one or two of them. We kill all of them. Annihilate them throughout the empire. Now you know what it says that the king and Haman did after they reached that decision? At the close of chapter 3? They sat down and had a drink. Well, I guess we're done for today. Let's go have a beer. Good idea. That's what they did. Haman hated one of those Jews more than all the others, and that was Mordecai. And it goes back a long ways because in their previous ancestry, See, both Haman and Mordecai come from a royal bloodline. Haman was descended from Agag. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. Mordecai was a descendant from the tribe of Benjamin. And that was the first king over Israel, which was Saul. And then during that period of time, almost a thousand years previous, God had reached the decision that the Amalekites needed to be, watch this. Does this sound familiar? They need to be annihilated. The Amalekites are so wicked, so evil. He sends Saul to utterly destroy them. Man, woman, children, animals, wipe them out. But instead of doing that, Saul comes back and he brings the best of the cattle and the best of the sheep and dragging along with him, who's he got? King Agag. Samuel, remember when we studied that? He shows up and he asks Saul, what are you doing? And then he asks him to kind of cut to the chase. Where's that king? And he shows him. And what did Samuel do? He took a sword. And he hacked him to 
pieces, killed him in glorious death. He died. Do you think Hammond had ever been this told the story of their people? And now there's a Jew that won't bow down to him. He is now in a position of authority. This is what you did, your people, to one of my ancestors? Well, now I'm in control. And you will bow to me. And Mordecai says, no, I won't. And he can't stand it. That's why he tricked the king into writing this law. Because he didn't want to just kill Mordecai. He wanted to wipe them out. And he said, we will annihilate them. So Haman knew how to manipulate the king. Haman obviously knew a lot of things because he had worked his way up to where he was second in command throughout the entire Persian Empire. There was a lot of things that Haman knew. But there was also some things that he didn't know. Haman didn't know that Xerxes' new queen, Esther, was a Jew. Hmm. He didn't also know that her cousin Mordecai had actually saved the king's life at one point in time. And that after they made, made this law, and it was announced, and Mordecai went out into the street in sackcloth and ashes and was mourning, and whenever he told Esther... And Esther at first is hesitating going before the king and she said, I could die because if he doesn't call for me, there's a real chance that I could be killed. But then ultimately he says, don't think that just because you're in the palace that you'll be spared. This guy is going to kill all the Jews. And so finally she says, if I die, I die. But she says this, get all the Jews together and pray for three days and fast for three days before I go into the king. Mordecai had persuaded her. Haman had to know the misery that Mordecai was going through. And isn't it interesting that when they roll the dice, you know how long it's going to be before they actually carry this out? Eleven months. I don't want to just kill you. I want to torment you. I want you to know it's coming. Because the king has signed it into law. He has stamped it with his ring. And in the Medes and the Persians, once the king puts his stamp on a law, there's no going back. You can't change it. And so Haman, he thinks, I've got it. I've got it. And so after... Esther goes in before the king. We talked about this a little bit last week. He allows her to come see him and she says that, he or he says, do you have a request? And, and she says, yes. And what is it? And she says, I want you and Haman to come to a lunch today. And so the king says, okay. And he gets Haman and they come and it's just the three of them. And then after they've gathered together, he asked her once again, what is it that you request? And she said, I've got one more. I want you to come tomorrow. You 
and Haman come tomorrow for another dinner and then I will tell you what I want. And so the king says, great, we'll do it. Haman didn't know what was about to happen. So what Haman does at the close of chapter 5 is he goes home and he gets his friends and he gets his wife and he gets his family together and he tells them, you can't believe how good our things are going for me. But, I've still got this one problem. That Jew, he won't bow before me. And so his wife and his friends in his home tell him, well, if you're going to the king's palace tomorrow to have lunch with the king and the queen, obviously you're in tight. So what you ought to do in the morning is that you ought to tell them that Mordecai ought to be hung on the gallows And Haman says, that sounds like a good plan. That's what I'll do. Now let me explain this. That whenever it says gallows there, oftentimes we think about hanging. It's more like this. It's more like a pole. It's more like a stake. And then they take that person and he is impaled on that stake. And then that stake is hoisted and placed up. They are on it. Let me ask you. Does that sound just a little bit familiar? That somebody takes a beam and puts somebody on it and then hosts it up and drops it in the ground and then everybody can see that? So you see what's going on? And Haman says, that's what I'm going to do for Mordecai. Tomorrow morning, that's exactly what I'm going to do. But what what Haman also doesn't know is that that night, the king can't sleep. So when he can't sleep, He asked if one of the servants could come in and read to him from the chronicles of his rule. And so the servant comes in, (coughs) starts to read to him. Lo and behold, he reads the part where Mordecai saved his life. And the king says, wait a minute. Did we ever do anything for that guy? And the servant says, no, never. Just about that time, They hear somebody out in the courtyard. And the king says, who's that? It's Haman. He says, tell him to come in here. So he comes in and he says to Haman, if the king wanted to honor somebody, what would be a good way to go about that? Now you got to get inside Haman's head just a little bit right here. The king and queen and myself The three of us are having lunch together today. So what is Haman thinking? 
He just asked me how he could honor someone. Who do you think Haman, Haman is thinking that he's going to honor? He's thinking, it's me. <laughs> so he tells him, well, this is what you ought to do. You ought to get one of your horses and you ought to get a robe and put it on him and a crown and then you ought to have one of your princes lead him through the streets and say, this is what, a, what the king does for a man that he wants to honor. And Xerxes says, that's a good idea. I want you to do that for Mordecai. So that's what he has to do. So afterwards, you know what's interesting here? Haman goes home. You know where Mordecai went? He went back to the gates. Isn't that consistent with his character? He's a servant. He's been a servant. And even though he's been paraded through the streets and he has been honored, when it's all over with, he just goes back to being Mordecai. (laughs) He just goes back to sitting in the gates. Haman goes home and he tells his wife and he tells his friends what's happened. Now listen to what she says. When Haman told his wife, Suresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife, Suresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. See, just previous to that, they're telling him, yeah, kill him. You're in a position. But now they realize with this turn of events, uh uh-oh, maybe God's watching out for him. And if you have started to fall, you're in trouble. Had a good friend that was a preacher. And then I can recall in sort of more lighthearted times that if somebody would say something that he thought they shouldn't have said, he'd step back. And they go, What are you doing? He goes, I know a lightning bolt's coming, so I'm getting back. (laughs) That's what his wife just said. I'm stepping back. Because now, Haman, you're in trouble. So what happens after this is, Haman comes to the dinner. And then Esther is there and the, queen, or the king asks, what it is it that you desire? She said, I'm asking for my life and the life of my people. And the king is like, and she said, there's someone who wants to kill and annihilate and plunder me and all my people. The king says, who? And she says, Haman, right there. Now the king knows he was set up. He gets up and he walks out into the gardens because he's so upset. Haman throws himself down at the feet of Esther and pleading for his life. And then the king comes back in and the eunuchs show up and they take a hold of Haman. 
And one of them says, he had set up a gallows for Mordecai and was going to hang him on it. And the king says, you hang him on it. So that's what they do. But the story's not over. Because, see, there's a law among the Medes and the Persians. And that law says to annihilate these people on a certain day. And so Esther pleads with him and she says, you've got to do something. And so what he does, he says, you get Mordecai, you get the scribes, and you write a law that you want. And so you know what they do? Is they write a law that on the same day that the Jews are supposed to be annihilated, that the Jews can take up arms and they can fight back. So that's what they did. And then the king puts his stamp on it and he says, deliver it. Go deliver that message. Verse 10 of chapter 8. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses, Bread from swift steeds. Isn't that interesting? You know how big the Persian Empire is? And you know what he's saying? Here's the message. Make copies of it. Give it to the couriers. Put them on the fastest horses. Take it to them. Take that message to them. You got to save these people. And so that's what they did. And so on that day, as you continue to read the story, the Jews take up arms and they defend themselves and they kill those that come to attack them. And then that part that Mark read for us this morning, you know what that ended up being? A celebration. <laughs> A celebration. A message of salvation was taken and delivered and they took up arms and they defended themselves and the Jews were saved. And then they celebrated. And you know what they called it? They called it Pur. From Pur. Casting lots. I'm going to encourage you to do something else too. Look it up. You know why? It's about 30 days away. And did you listen to what he said? You make this for all your generations. And don't forget it. To this day, in 2024, the Jews will celebrate Purim. You know when? March. 23rd, 24th. This year, they'll be celebrating. As a reminder of this deliverance, of this celebration, of what happened with Esther. I'm going to tell you something else before I wrap this up. 
I want to read to you from John, the 8th chapter, and verse 44 and verse 45. Think about this story. And that's why I encourage you, read this story. Study this story. Think about how this story applies. It's amazing. John, the 8th chapter, and verse 44, <clears throat> verse 45. This is Jesus speaking to His enemies. And He says, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus, speaking to his enemies, said, you're just like your father. When you think about Haman, do you think he had a father? Do you think his father was the devil? Do you think he has the same DNA as the devil? Now think about this. Do you remember when Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? And Satan took him up on a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And what did he say? I'll give it to you. Now, there's been debates over whether or not Satan could have actually delivered that. But that's not really the point. (laughs) He said, I'll give that to you. One condition. What was the one condition? If you will bow down and worship me. And what did Jesus say? Be gone. You shall worship the Lord thy God. In Him only. Shall you serve? You know what that was? That was one Jew who would not bow to Satan. And Luke, the 8th chapter, gives us a little more insight to what goes on there. And after that, it says that Satan left till a more convenient time. You know what that means? I didn't get you to bow today, but I'll be back. And so Satan pursued him. He pursued him till he got Judas to betray him. He pursued him till he got the Pharisees to drag him before Pilate. He pursued him till he got the Romans to nail him to that stake and hoist him up there. He pursued him because he wanted him to bow to him. And when he wouldn't, I'll kill you. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound anything like the book of Esther? But you see how God worked it so that things got turned around on Haman? And do you know what happened to Satan? The one who held the king the keys to death? He hung Jesus on a cross and killed him. But Jesus did not die a victim. He died a sacrifice. And because he had never sinned, death could not hold him. The very one 
that you thought you would destroy. The very one that you thought would help you to destroy all of his followers. It got turned on you, didn't it? Death couldn't hold him. He came forth from the grave. And because of that, now death doesn't have power over us. Isn't that amazing? So in the close of Esther, he says, take that message and get it to those people and take the fastest steeds. Why is that? Because that empire's been. <laughs> and there's a day of annihilation that is coming. But if they get the message, they can be saved. Does that sound familiar? Sounds familiar. Get the message out. That's what I say. God has reversed our fortunes through His Son. If the Jews celebrated, how much more should we celebrate? They're going to celebrate this story, and you can look it up, next month, about the 23rd or 24th of March. And the reason why that kind of fluctuates, I'll just tell you this little tidbit of information. The reason why that fluctuates from year to year is because they operate off of the Hebrew calendar. And so it won't be March 23rd and 24th come 2025. It'll move because their calendar is different than ours. But this year, that's when it is. So they have a day to celebrate. So let me ask you, do we have a day to celebrate? Yeah. And you know what else it says in this story that they did? It says they celebrated together. They ate together. And then they sent gifts to one another. They shared gifts. We eat together. We celebrate together. And we're studying the book of Romans. And you know what the book of Romans says? That we each have gifts. And that we ought to share them with one another. Does it sound great? A story that's 2,500 years old is relevant today. I'll leave it there. And Cameron, I'll be moving on from Esther. This will be the last one, so... I want to extend the invitation this morning, though. Jesus said, He that believes and is baptized can be saved. If you're subject to the invitation and we can help you, you come while together we stand while we sing.